Hello and welcome back to Financial Gain, the estate planning podcast, the show where we explore the biggest topics in financial planning for people throughout the UK. This week we are taking our first look on the podcast at the Alternative Investment Market, or AIM, which is the London Stock Exchange market for small and medium-sized companies looking for growth. AIM was launched in 1995 as a replacement to the Unlisted Securities Market, or the USM. But AIM allows companies that are smaller and less developed, or those that want a more flexible approach to governance, to float shares and affords a more flexible regulatory system that is applicable on the main market. When it was launched, AIM only comprised of 10 companies valued at around 80 million. And fast forward over 25 years to May, this market now consists of over 800 companies with an average market capitalization of 80 million pounds per company. When it comes to AIM, there is a general assumption that bigger market capitalisation means less risk. However, this is not always the case. Joining me to discuss why bigger is not always better is Stephen English, the Investment Director at Stellar Asset Management. Hi Stephen. Hello there. How are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Delighted you could join us today on this uh, AIM session. Do you want to kick off by telling us uh, in a bit more detail how the AIM market has evolved over the years? It's, uh, it had a certain infamy and some people, quite pejorative in the terms, Wild West was banded around and I think certainly in terms of the oil and gas uh, mining companies that were allowed on there um, back in the day uh, and when it it ballooned to 17 1800 companies it was true that unfortunately there was a lot of dross on aim um that's been paired back now there's 850 odd companies um vast majority you wouldn't want to invest in but you you sift among that detritus and absolutely there are some world class gems and that's not necessarily a bad thing that aim is replete with um a lot of poor companies because therein lies the opportunity for us as stock pickers and it's probably one of the best stock pickers market globally it's been a tremendous success story um despite maybe my slightly negative opening it has raised prodigious sums of money uh it's incinerated prodigious sums of money but it has created and helped to create uh some companies that have really kicked on to billion pound plus companies and moved to the main market and you know, there were growing pains, uh, you know, like any adolescence, but it has definitely come of age, we feel. And you know, well, certainly the last five years, the quality of company coming on there now um, is something that we're really excited yep. about and, and to support. Yep. And before we kind of get into the detail and the narrative behind today's subject, looking at the development of the AIM market. Would you say overall it's been a success in terms of its objectives and what it's what it's achieved? Clearly there's been some some highs and lows, if you like, not only in terms of volatility, but the companies that have been there, grown there. But overall, how it, would you say it has been a success for achieving what it wanted to do as a market? I, overall, yes. Um, you, know, you, could, you could say there's been too many blow-ups on AIM, but a lot of them, I would argue... Um, 
were fairly obvious. Um, and it's not just AIM. You look at, you know, Carillion wasn't an AIM-listed company yes. that went bust. Thomas Cook. Uh, there's been some very large companies that are also, unfortunately, um, have been subject to frauds or false accounting. Um, so it's not just AIM. But I think, by and large, absolutely, uh, in terms of its raison d'etre, which is to support small, fast-growing companies and, and provide growth capital to them to get bigger and employ more people. And it's all grist to the mill from a HMRC perspective and National Insurance, PAYE. And you know, SMEs create a disproportionate amount of jobs for yes. an economy. So it's a vital, vital aspect of it. I saw a statistic, it's maybe a little outdated now, but in terms of AIM and its contribution to UK GDP, it matched jointly the pharmaceutical and defence sector, two huge sectors in the UK, and it was matching them uh, from a, from an economic uh, impact point of view. So I think not a lot of people appreciate that. Um, it's easy to focus on the negatives, and we don't maybe celebrate the, uh, the positives enough um, from AIM. I think it's undoubtedly right, isn't it? Because you, you know, as we talk to financial advisors, you know, daily, mm-hmm. you know, we're always, you know, referred back to those occasional blow-ups that that capture the headlines. But it's always the, you know, the negative sentiment that gets the most publicity, as you say, rather than the successes that huge numbers of companies have had. And it's kind of, would you agree that it's kind of kind of symbiotic, if you like, that if you are a growth market and you are for smaller companies, then inevitably there are going to be some failures, be they failures of of incorrect strategy, may they be failures of market movements in terms of whether they're exporting, importing, or their particular market. You know, there are going to be some inevitable casualties and, you know, in any in any walk of life, you know, you want these companies to grow, get stronger to be those engines of, of growth. And as you say, that SME market is by far the con- biggest contributor to GDP employment uh, in, in, in this country. Absolutely. Uh, if I could sum that up, uh, you, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Um, which is, it is that, you know, for, the, for investors, they're committing risk capital, so you do demand and expect the return. Uh, it is eyes wide open. Um, but there is a disproportionate amount of companies which offer you the ability for the, the fabled multi-bagger, as Peter Lynch called them, the 10-baggers, those that can go up tenfold. Some have gone up a 100-fold. Um, there was a great study by Schroders recently, actually, that the UK has a disproportionate amount in terms of the percentage of companies listed. We have a disproportionate amount of multi-baggers. I mean, if you look up the last 10 years, total return of Vodafone, you've, you've got square root of tap all. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity cost there um, within a well-diversified AIM portfolio, of which we're one of, of dozens now operating in, in that space. Actually, the returns have been very, very handsome for arguably not that outsized risk. Um, the, other, the other aspect is, for given we focus on IHT mitigation using AIM companies, there has to be that degree of risk because it's such a generous tax giveaway to potentially say 40%, well, you do have to have that element of uh, riskier capital. Um, I've used the, the analogy before, Aim. it's a bit like the Japanese blowfish, fugu. You know, it's absolutely deadly in the wrong hands, but in the right hands, it's quite delicious. I bow to your better judgment in that regard. I've never been to Japan <laughs> or experienced a fugu, but... Um, <laughs> 
I'm looking forward <laughs> Bless to you. I'm looking forward to not uh, killing myself trying to cook <laughs> it. Um, but but kind of pulling us back, I think for me there's also a, a subject of of relativity, isn't there? Because when we talk about the companies that are on AIM, we're talking about you know in the world in which we operate, we've got you know average market capitalization of 300 million. You know, quite a lot of our portfolio is around you know 150 to 200 million pounds worth of size of organization. You know, I might argue all day long is that they're not necessarily small companies. They are significantly sized companies that employ you know many thousands of people. So when we think about small, 200 million, 300 million, I would say is not necessarily small. It's small relative to Shell, I grant you, but it's not small in the true sense of, of, of how we might all perceive small. Mm-hmm. I, and I fully concur with that. There's there's quite outrageous sizeism uh, within the fund management industry, um, largely led from the, the monolithic wealth funds who've got bigger themselves, so their definition of small um, has changed as they've metamorphosized as well. Um, you know, people are surprised when you look under the bonnet a lot of these companies, even if they're quite recently listed. Um, you know, we invested in one that was recently listed, Kitwave, a wholesaler, which was actually founded in the late 1980s. Um, you know, it's been, the CEO founder's been through many, many a cycle, uh, been there, done that. Uh, and it's a terrific business, a real scale with hundreds of millions of revenue. So I fully agree with that. Um, everyone's definition seemingly differs to where you draw the line or where, where is the Rubicon between a, a micro cap, you have a nano cap, a small cap, a mid cap. Um, it's, it, for us, we focus in particular on the sub 250 mil. You know, in some ways, it's an arbitrary line, um, but we tend to have less competition uh, in that field. When you've got less competition, it means the price is less efficient, to use the jargon, and there's, the, the, there's more opportunities to find better value. And when you do find those good value, the discount to the intrinsic value is also bigger. Whereas you go up the market cap spectrum, you're up against dozens and dozens and dozens of analysts covering it full-time. Uh, there's very little I can bring to the party then from an, an added value point of view or a variant perception. I mean, it's absolutely vital to have uh, a different interpretation, maybe on expectations of that growth. Certainly further out, looking three, five years out, gives you a better steer because the stock market really isn't bothered beyond the next 12 to 18 months sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And it was quite interesting to to read the other day that and of course, I forget these things being old. Is that you know you've been a fund manager for twenty years now, and so you know that knowledge that you've built up for being you know an active fund manager over that time, and particularly for with regards to companies created on AIM, where you say that they haven't got the same kind of broker or analyst exposure. This is a true case of kind of reaping what you sow or rolling up your sleeves and getting stuck in to understand each of these companies in a great deal of detail yourselves and with the team that you've got around you to ascertain, you know, true value and the opportunity that exists by your own, as I say, by your own research and, and, and digging into the companies. Is that something that is always going to be a store for for, for, for value within the AIM market? 
hopefully because it's one of the last bastions of this price inefficiency and it is going back to a genuine stock pickers market um yeah by having that 20 year experience you know people call it intuition i kind of call it learned experience sometimes it's the snaps this is firing in the background you're you're putting a, a puzzle together without actually knowing it um but when you do you know probably done thousands of interviews now you get to know what good better best looks like from a ceo and sometimes it's what they don't say is the most telling um the dog that didn't bark in uh, the sherlock holmes story um and there's certain tricks uh along the way um that, that we can use there's a lot of psychology in it but there's also a danger where you can grossly overcomplicate this i've seen many and many and many a smarter investor than myself who burn very very brightly but quite fleetingly and we definitely think that less is more um you know, the longer the tooth the longer in the tooth you get in this game i've realized that less absolutely is more everything should be made as simple as possible or not simpler as einstein would say um you'd run in a cliche jar on this podcast john i know you do like I, I, love a, I love a cliche but i knew you were going to beat me so i haven't tried <laughs> so far that's <laughs> it uh, and for our listeners out there really superior investment comes down to boiling it a company down and trying to figure out what are the key three four five drivers that will dictate the majority of the share price performance trying to figure out the 101 driver uh, is just a terrible return on it on investment um you know the difficulty is that every company has different drivers but then it comes back to this pattern recognition thing and the longer you do it uh, you've got a richer tapestry um, of wisdom, quite a colourful phrase there, um, to draw upon. Uh, but yeah, it is absolutely true. Yep. Uh, things do rhyme. They're not always the same. Um, great thing about investment is everything is cyclical. So it does come around again like, like fashions. Yeah, so so getting to the you know, the heart of today's today's episode around is bigger, always better, as it were. We clearly draw on a number of themes that, that, that you've touched on there insofar as this is not, well, for me, one of the starting points, maybe the big is not always better because we've got um, companies that aren't as well researched and aren't as well analysed uh, and therefore as a fund manager that's been doing that analysis and research then you've got a, a better position and a better starting place and a better opportunity than, than those that have been covered by by third-party analysts. Is there, is there anything else you want to draw out of that subject or any other points that you think, you know, mean to you that in the main, I mean, clearly it's not saying every bad, every big company is not necessarily going to perform well. Clearly they do, but you see better value in the smaller end for a number of reasons. Yeah, and we've been fairly consistent the last, well, five years at least um as interest rates were going lower and lower and lower they were disproportionately benefiting the larger aim caps within aim sorry larger larger caps within the aim market and you know we were calling out something of a bubble there were some great companies there uh, but risk is ultimately a function of price and the higher price you pay for something the lower returns you are locking in and it's a fairly simple formula so we were less uh, prepared than some of our larger peers and 
The other aspect of fund management is that size is the enemy of performance. Um, the larger FUM you're managing, um, you either have to buy bigger companies rather than the best companies, or you have to have many, many more stocks in the portfolio. So rather than 30, 40, it's 60, 80, 100. Or you have to own 10, 20, 30, 40% of the company. You can't get around the hard maths. That's why we, we prefer to cap our strategy to maintain that in investment uh, integrity. But the great thing about that is that th there's a real opportunity. Well, Peter Lynch was a um, big advocate of the private investor having a tremendous advantage over professionals such as myself, and, and they absolutely do in terms of there's the ultimate nimbleness there from a private investor. Um, but the great thing about growth companies, and you see this time and time again, is you get many, many bites at the cherry. Even if you miss the first 100, 200% even, you can still make a prodigious amount of money. And often it's far better to wait for the data to start to show that momentum and that this business model is proven. I call it escape velocity. Uh, so I really want to see companies with a critical mass. And I've noticed that £50 million of revenue is a, a certain escape velocity metric. You just get far less profit warnings than outright blow-ups. They've grown up in size. There's a certain bigness to them, but they're still quite a small company. But 50 mil, it shows you that actually they've got a very, very good product or service already. And if you can identify companies, then that can replicate that into new markets, particularly geographically, then the upside becomes unbounded. And this is when you're getting back into the realms of those multi-baggers. Let's say that doesn't, you don't miss it overnight. You can be relatively slow to the party, de-risk it and still still do very, very well. The other key reason of focusing on the smaller end of it is, be, you know, these, these large investors aren't stupid at all. Um, they would love to own these companies in decent size, but they're precluded from because the market caps are too low. As they get bigger, they become more coveted, so they suck in more and more inflows which drives the valuation of that company higher so if you get this right you can get a twin kicker to returns where you get strong earnings growth which drives the market cap higher which then sucks in larger investor which gives you an expansion to the price earnings ratio so the multiple that people are prepared to pay for that earnings it might have been 10 times when it was a smaller company and nothing really has changed except they got a bit bigger and now investors are quite happily paying 20 times for those same earnings and we look to harvest that we look to take advantage of that when we think it's gone too far as it's reaching a billion maybe although we don't sell them at any sort of uh, market cap cut off if we still think the three or five year view is is, is a good risk reward we'll hold on um, but there is a time and a place where you need to harvest those returns lock them in and we start again you know it's everyone's green now so we do like to recycle and we've we've, we've always been recycling from expensive to cheap yeah, and I think that's the that's the one of the key points, isn't it? Picking up on what you were talking earlier about, you know, a, a private investor and 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 the nimbleness that they may have, um, you know, the difficulty, you know, speaking personally, is you never know when the time to sell is. You might have a good tip or you've done your research on the way in, but actually knowing when to get out, whether that's to to take profits or to trim the size of your portfolio or to, to get out entirely and what are the flags and what are the warnings that's presumably one of the big differences between me man on the street and you 
the professional. Hopefully, and you've you've hit an interesting point there because you go into Amazon or even my bookcase in the office. Ninety nine, ninety eight percent of the books tell you how to buy, and hardly anyone covers the more important bit, which is how and when to sell. And I don't know why that is. Um, maybe it's just not as interesting um, at first glance, but it's absolutely vital. Um, I used to have a slide which which had quite a lot of reasons on. Um, you've seen the slide, John, and what reasons to sell. And the more you stare at a slide, and it just hit me that there's only three reasons why you should sell a stock. Uh, reason number one, um, something's gone wrong. To, that's undermined the investment case, and that could be our due diligence was faulty um, or there were shortcomings in it, or nothing wrong with the company. There was just this exogenous shock, uh, which has walloped them. Um, it could have been a known unknown, or it could have been an unknown unknown, um, the black swan call it what you may so reason one something's gone wrong uh take that new information on board park your ego move on um worst thing you can do then is anchor to the price that you paid and let that dictate anything at all because it's utterly irrelevant the market doesn't know what price you paid for it trying to recoup your losses uh is a losing strategy mm. reason number two is that it's fulfilled its upside it's become if it's for our quality growth stocks, we don't like to give them away, so we like to see them become prodigiously expensive, not mere fair-valued because they're quite rare. So selling them gives you a problem because you have to try and find something of equal quality, of which can be difficult on AIM. So for our higher-quality companies, they need to become prodigiously expensive, but everything has a price. So sell because it's risen to a point where it makes less sense from a risk-reward point of view. That's reason number two. And reason number three why you'd sell is nothing's gone wrong per se, um, but nothing's going right. It's It's been stale or your conviction has fallen. They've done an acquisition. They've had a change of management. They've moved to a new market. Um, you think they've overpaid or you think the capital allocation not good enough. When you're running 38 stocks as we are in a portfolio with the best will in the world, that 38th, if you rank them in order of conviction, the 38th, probably isn't as strong as your latest idea um so that's a good discipline as well to force yourself to force rank every stock in your portfolio um because generally your latest idea is your best idea so the opportunity cost of keeping that stale stock is too high get this one in you think it's got 50 100 upside on three or five year view versus something that's stale might be down 10 percent. again it's irrelevant um, it's always forward-looking. You've got to be forward-looking. So yeah. there are only three reasons. Yeah, and I think you know you can't. I would always subscribe to the view that you can't really be criticised for taking a profit. You know, if if you've made a good you know investment and there is opportunity to take profit off the table as a as a professional manager, you should be doing that. I'd love you. I'd love you as a client, then, John. Uh, um, you are a client, so thank you. Um, it, it's half true. Uh, it's the old adage, isn't it? You, you never go poor taking a profit, to which you could quip that you'll never get very rich taking a profit too early either. And this is why it is an infernal game at times by snatching away at a 50%, even if it, especially maybe if it came in, in short order. Um, if you then see that trundle up and it could have been a 500 or a 1,000% gain, you do need to rub your nose in it and you do need to feel that pain 
even though it was an opportunity cost, it's here's what you could have won. It would have had a tremendous impact on your portfolio. So don't get me wrong. There's always, Because there's 800 odd stocks, there's always stocks that are going to go to the moon that you don't own. That's the nature of small caps. Where I beat myself up and kick myself is if it should have been obvious and I should have owned it and I didn't, um, that's when I really do beat myself up. Or I sold it because it went up quite a lot in short order. That's one of the worst reasons to ever sell. Things tend to grow into devaluations. It could go sideways for three years, but by having this longer-term view, and I think as everyone has shortened their investment horizons, it pays to lengthen your investment horizons and take the contra position to that. Um, so with that, 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 tr- that is a helpful tool maybe for, for listeners if, if they are thinking of snatching away at a profit. Uh, as Peter Lynch said, too many people water the weeds and pull the flowers. And that's what you're doing because very often people look at a portfolio, see what's risen, sell that to reinvest into something when actually you should see what's fallen because it's not working out and it's probably going to fall even more. But they don't like to for various uh, cognitive dissonance reasons. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. And in terms of, you know, the the bigger companies, and I'm sure there must be others out there listening today and uh, and thinking potentially in a similar way to I do in terms of the this question for you Stephen is that you know if we've got you know companies that have on aim that have that have grown say they're in a market cap three quarters of a billion something of something of that order so at the top end getting towards the top end of those companies on aim would it be a true statement that they wouldn't be as a as attractive because you know, if they get the growth that we're kind of expecting, they are, in effect, going to depart from AIM and move on to the next market. So the opportunity to capture value at the bigger end isn't quite as appealing because you, we just don't know the time it's going to take before, you know, in effect, they 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 get onto the main market, the FTSE 350 or whatever it may be. Does that bear any thinking in your uh, when you're looking at new companies? <laughs> Sometimes it, it's it's always more to do with the valuation rather than the absolute size of the company, and then trying to gauge. Um, sometimes, as weird as it sounds, even at a seven fifty mil market cap, its best years could still be ahead of it. You know, Walmart started off as a small company. Starbucks started off as a small company, and they became multi multi billion dollar global enterprises. Maybe sideways to that question is an observation that naturally assuming aim companies now gravitate to the main market uh, isn't necessarily the case anymore it used to be the case it was viewed as a badge of honor Um, i've grown up um, cheerio thanks for all your help i'm going to play with the the grown-ups now and off they went to the the main market and what, what we've seen is actually the reverse we've seen those at the lower end of the FTSE small cap it makes more sense actually now to come down to aim particularly because there's a lot of it iht uh, money you've got vct eis as well um you've got an audience who's more receptive to the smaller market cap maybe for tax reasons yeah but it is liquidity to them and a lot of founders uh, they, they do appreciate the iht relief themselves because they're still pretty significant shareholding shareholders um even companies that are knocking on towards that billion pound level. So it, it's interesting. Maybe it's a, another sign of AIM growing up. 
um, that companies no longer feel the need um, to move on. What you've also seen, a key reason for that is, and this is a great thing, Howard Marks, one of my investment heroes, he said, ultimately all investors are trend followers, and it's absolutely right. So if you go back 15, 20 years, a lot of long-only fund managers in London were quite snippy about AIM, and they wouldn't touch a stock on AIM. It was precluded. Then, because some of them were doing very, very well, they said, okay, we'll have 10% allowable in AIM. Then it got to 20%, 50%. Now they can invest as much as they want in AIM, um, such as life. And I think because of that reason, it makes there's less pressure now to move up to the, the full list as well. And it's also a lot easier to do M&A on AIM as well, and it's just mm. it's cheaper. Mm. Uh, the rules are less onerous. So I think management teams appreciate that flexibility and freedom as well. Agreed, agreed. It's, it, it, is, it has been interesting to see that evolution of, of, of how the market and, and the perception of the market has, has come about. So it is, you know, AIM is now seen as that market that provides a strong base of capital, albeit it's pretty strongly tax advantaged. So, you know, we've got to be careful of changing in legislation that could have an impact on on that availability availability of capital. But through and through the 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 market as a whole has grown grown substantially since its uh, inception 20 odd years ago yeah and it's only it's only been more helpful the legislation i agree you never say never but you know the, for you're allowed it's allowed to be invested in ices now um then there's no stamp duty um then the, the business relief and it has been going one way but, but never say never um no i mean i was very surprised when you know aim got the twin you know keep the iht and get the isa when that came in in when was it 2014 2015 i think from memory um fully expected the iht to go as a as a byproduct of getting isa eligibility so yeah that 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 freedom of capital but you know what we know is that if you provide the incentives like government previously or re- more recently has provided incentives for electric cars to stimulate uh, you know going greener from a from a fuel perspective and if you provide those incentives typically those incentives do work in terms of a stimulus of capital into that market so you know I think we would probably agree that you know growth companies need those incentives whether they're tax-based incentives fiscal based incentives to get private clients those with deployable capital that are understand the risks to be able to get their checkbooks out and support this this huge huge part of of uk plc and its contributor to growth well absolutely i mean the, the, don't know what the value of aim is today but it was fairly recently 100 billion pounds so it's a big chunk of change i i i also like the dynamic of people getting back involved in share ownership because since the 70s and 80s, the private investor has been on the wane, certainly in the large and mid-caps. It's been institutionalized. Pension funds have taken over. Uh, and I think that's to the detriment of the market ecosystem generally. And I think to get private investors caring and passionate about businesses. And that's that's why when we joined Stella, we were keen to get the, the company monthly spotlights out uh, because a lot of our businesses are business-to-business orientated. So the name might not give away what they actually do, but actually, I bet your bottom dollar you've used their product or service in the last month at least. Um, people are always surprised the feedback we get. Um, oh, didn't know. Well, 
and, and it's a really nice feeling. I, I own, I actually own a bit of that company. Uh, it's not just a digit on a screen. Um, maybe that's me getting a bit romantic about things, but I do, I do sincerely think that is a good thing. And I think that's important as well as you bring it back into, you know, a risk perspective. You know, clearly, investing capital, any form of capital in any business is risky. Yeah. Um, but when we think about companies quoted on AIM and when we've talked through the sizes of these companies and the diligence that's required and also, you know, I would add, you know, as you've just mentioned, the, the volume of um, discretionary fund managers with portfolios now that, you know, the quality of analysis that's being done on these companies and therefore, in effect, the quality of the management teams that probably you've seen dramatically change on these companies as well means that you know it's a great risk it's a, it's a natural great risk mitigant insofar as you've got lots of professional fund managers analysts um, digging into these companies asking questions doing research probing management and getting engaged and I'm not saying it's not without risk but there's quality risk control within within you know investing in the A market these days the perception is Wild West, don't trust them. Let's all run off Pat Val and all the other companies that have that have done stupid, arguably fraudulent things. Um, but nineteen, whatever it is, eight, nine percent of them are well robust, put together, well thought out, uh, and improving in terms of quality of ideas and and risk mitigant for for private clients. I concur absolutely with that. You, you can see it, and part of that movement, we haven't mentioned the acronym yet, I'm sure we will, um, the ESG element, so the G, I think is often overlooked, the governance aspect. To us, it's absolutely vital uh, to have a well-functioning board. You need the execs, you need intelligent fanatics at the coalface operating it, delighting the customers, getting better, faster, cheaper, um, but also you need, those people to, for their feet to be held to the fire and, and held to account, um, which obviously is the chairperson and the non-exec director job. The, it has become a much more onerous role. Um, I think go back 10, 15 years ago, they were happy to, there was they were portfolio NEDs. Um, they rocked up four times a year and picked up a check uh, for very little work. Um, but now there's a there's a lot more accountability on them personally, uh, so they take their roles very very seriously. The corporate governance code, of which most AIM companies follow, which is the QCA code, uh, which is a a principles rather than rules based system. Um, it's a great code. I think it's got a it balances the trade off uh, between pragmatism uh, and not being overly prescriptive, um, and it's on an explain. Uh, comply or explain basis um so if you're not complying then ex explain why the hell not and uh, that's been enlightening as well agreed agreed and tell 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 us you know you've talked to me a lot about the three eyes i don't have three eyes yet but do you <laughs> want to um tell everybody what that mantra is to you and what it and what it means to the way you approach uh investing within aim yeah three eyes i mean 
I don't know why I happened upon this. I think uh, maybe some listeners and marketeer and said put something in threes because people remember threes, education, 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 as someone once said. Well, the three eyes to me, it boils it down and, and it is, is a serious point. What I want to see, the three eyes that are characteristics within a, a management team. So it's intelligence, integrity, and incentives. So intelligence, hopefully, speaks for itself. Um, integrity again hopefully speech for itself and incentives and this is coming back to the the old agent principle problem hired hands are they running it for their own benefit or for shareholders benefit and we want to see absolutely um, a clear alignment and there's no better alignment than them owning a significant chunk of that business um, that business is equity our average insider owns about 14 percent of each investee company so the majority of their wealth is going to be created by the share price going up, not the market cap expanding, which you can easily do by issuing shares like Confetti to buy Tom, Dick and Harry, which is actually destroying value over the long term. The reason why that happens quite often, uh, particularly in the larger cap stocks, is bigger companies means a bigger pay packet. And when you've got a CEO whose wealth is going to be driven by their salary, they think less in per share terms, be that free cash flow per share, earnings per share or the share price itself so beyond the three eyes what are the key determinants of whether a company is going to be a, a success or a failure to use theory uh, well if we can tick off the three eyes we're off to a good start over the long long term um, the, the, the key determinant that sorts the wheat from the chaff is the ability of management to allocate capital uh, again, this is an area that's fraught. There's a lot of misunderstanding, not least of which from the brokers sometimes, um, who I think it runs contra. They don't, they don't think it's in their interests to to maybe be buying shares back. I think they view that as shrinking the company, but that can be a- absolutely transferring value from exiting sellers um, to those that remain. For me, capital should quite simply go to the highest and best use, be that organically um, through developing their products or increasing research and development, moving into new markets or new products, or it could be inorganic. There could be some fantastic acquisition targets that would greatly accelerate their, their product roadmap or brings them into new markets or new customers or there's um, tremendous synergies to extract or cross-sell, um, which can improve the ongoing sustainable growth rate. Um, or there's debt. Debt can be used judiciously. We do favor net cash balance sheets. Nearly two-thirds of our companies are net cash balance sheets. But depending on the business model, if, if it's a very low volatile earnings stream, you can wear a modicum of debt. Sometimes we'll go to companies, we won't invest in them until they get that debt down, and we'll, we'll tell them as such because... Uh, you can repatriate debt to equity then, or dividends. And if there's one filter that's kept me out of a lot of mischief, it was uh, by only investing companies that are paying a dividend or are going to be paying one in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, which is a prerequisite for our service. Um, it's, a, it's a tremendously dumb filter in some respects, but it's really, there's wider signaling effects if you're paying a dividend. You're a grown-up company. There's actual real cash being generated unless they're borrowing it from the bank and paying it out the back door, which sometimes happens. But as long as free cash flow is covering that dividend payment uh, and they're still able to invest in all areas of the business to create a sustainable business, then all the better for it. So there's many different levers to pull. 
when it comes to capital allocation. And you'd be surprised, John, but a lot of CEOs don't actually understand capital allocation that well. The dark arts at the city, um, these are entrepreneurs. They might have founded the business in the bedroom and it's been bootstrapped thereafter. And, you know, trying to encourage them to buy back shares because it's at the right level because it's at a big discount intrinsic value. Sometimes it just falls flat and they almost see it as an admission of defeat and can't put that capital to better use. And if they can, great. Uh, if you can get 20, 30% return on capital employed, then then go for it. But very often they can't. And the last thing we want to see is what happens far too often is where they, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people with spreadsheets that can reverse engineer any deal to look attractive and hit their IRRs regardless of the price they pay. And we see too, too much destructive M&A done um, you know, from the lawyers to the brokers, everyone else along the chain is just telling you, yes, 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 this is a great deal. Sometimes we're the lone voices saying, what the hell are you thinking? This is this is a crap deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it is it is thoroughly thoroughly interesting, and it's and it's a you know it's a fascinating topic that that you make come alive that that discusses um, why you know this is not about bigger isn't always best as the as the subject of today this is all about being diligent being prepared being well researched you know size isn't everything this is this is about quality of information quality of process um and you know as you've touched on experience as well isn't it all of those things and the great thing about this job sometimes skipping to work other times is the most stressful thing in the world but you never stop learning um when you find the key, the stock market changes the lock. Um, the other great thing about it, you meet some wonderful, wonderful entrepreneurs, visionaries often, we used the phrase before, intelligent fanatics. And what you tend to find is the more successful they are, the more humble they are as well. And certainly that's the characters we want to align ourselves with. Good. Thank you for that. Now, we, as uh, regular listeners will know, we're going to dive into some shorter, quicker punchier types of questions just to finish this session off Stephen so um, not my greatest strength John no I know mine <laughs> neither so wish us both luck everybody as we quickly delve into as we finish off the sort of last 10 minutes that uh, that we have today so um, coming in from the floor questions thank you um, what trends are you seeing in the market in both in the short term and the medium term wider market we 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 think this upcoming decade is going to be one very much pitched towards small caps. Uh, we think QE is largely done with as an experiment. It disproportionately benefited large caps for reasons um, that are too numerous to go through today. Uh, we think the setup is very good for small caps. And if there are parallels to the 70s, which more, was more inflationary, uh, which, which we're going through a deglobalization episode, so we quite easily could see inflation of three to five rather than one to three, that itself is also very, very good for small caps. Um, the second best asset class in the 70s actually was small caps. The best performing asset class was oil and gas, which is perhaps unsurprising. One of the worst performing asset class in the 70s was large caps. Good, good. And I love this question. Um, <laughs> what are some of the biggest misconceptions of AIM that you come across? You it might not love the question. <laughs> <laughs> that it is almost rigged um, against a private investor and it's just far too risky to to bother with uh, and it's a hornet's nest. Um, 
say if you've got a hurdle rate that you you go in eyes eyed open that nine out of ten stocks you listen to or management teams you listen to and it's become wonderfully accessible now there's some great platforms on there for private investors pi world and investor meet company it's democratized access but you have a hurdle rate nine in ten don't invest in them that one in ten though could really genuinely uh transform your wealth so to you what's more important portfolio construction or stock selection both next question <laughs> both uh, good and i know i know the answer to this question because uh, you've got a dual style of investing split between what is known as growth stocks and and value stocks and so for others what is the difference between those two uh, labels and, and and why do you invest in in both of those uh, buckets there's, there's a lot of different badges in very very simple terms a value stock traditionally is viewed as something trading on a low multiple of its earnings it could have a high dividend yield because of that low price generally there's something up with it or in the recent past it's maybe missed its numbers that's why it's cheap um, but they tend to present a good opportunity because people overly discount the negatives. They think they've been doing badly for the last couple of years. They're going to do badly forever. And these things tend to mean revert. And then the valuation snaps back. And you make the most money in value stock from the, the price earnings ratio going from maybe seven, eight times back to 12 to 14 times. It's never going to be the best quality company in the world. Growth companies, uh, in contrast, it's much more to do with Companies that can sustain a high level of growth, be that to their sales on the top line or to their earnings, ideally both. Um, and they exhibit typically high quality characteristics, not least of which a high return on capital. Great thing about having both styles or a foot in both camps is that they march to the beat of a different drum at different points in the economic cycle. When inflation is going up or down or interest rates going up and down, it, it affects the growth and the value stocks differently to grossly simplify value stocks tend to do better or well when it, inflation and interest rates are going up and conversely growth stocks get carried out uh, and shot in the woodshed when interest rates are certainly rising rapidly they're much more sensitive to interest rates um, that's happened happened last year value came to the fore um, so if you're one style or the other depending on which style you were it was a great year or a terrible year last year so we like things that zig and zag at different points in the cycle and they do good and you touched on that dreaded i word or another i word uh inflation there you know everybody's forecasting clearly inflation to be higher you know this decade than and than, than it has been previously uh, an obvious thing to say so briefly because it is obviously a arguably a subject worth covering an hour all on your own but you know what are the implications arising that you see for small caps as a result of ongoing higher inflation than than have previously been the norm it comes back to that it's been an era of passive investment uh beta you only needed to own the s&p and nothing else and you've done very very well uh low inflation had a massive part to do with that because it allowed interest rates to remain low uh, the cost of capital now costs something again we think this is terrific because a lot of my aim companies have been sitting on war chests for some time that they would have liked to deployed through acquisitions 
but when the cost of capital was zero, you had private equity and venture capital prepared to pay nosebleed valuations, which made little sense, and they definitely don't make sense now. You've also had a lot of private equity firms lever up to the eyeballs and gorge themselves on cheap debt, and a rolling loan gathers no loss. But when you can, when you can't roll that loan anymore, then you're in a world of pain. And we think there's a world of pain coming, particularly if interest rates stay high. I think private equity got away with it in COVID because it was a V-shaped bounce. They didn't have to mark to market their valuations. So the lot, the the higher and longer interest rates sustain for, I think you're going to see the tide go out on private equity, a lot of distress coming in there. And a lot of our small caps, because they have less access to capital, that's why they run more prudent balance sheets, uh, particularly the ones we target. So we're very, very excited from a high interest rate or higher interest rate perspective. And they're also earning a decent revenue on that cash pile, which they haven't been for a decade. Yeah, so as ever, op- op- opportunity abounds. And we come back to the the, the, the central theme that it's 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 not about size it's about all the qualities that we've that we've talked on and touched on today in terms of what adds value for investors uh and how you approach it when when looking at companies quoted on aim thank you one last one from me Stephen, and it's and it's something you must wear very well insofar as how sprightly you look for a man who's been doing this for 20 years but the final final one from me um, what, frust- what frustrates you most about uh, investing in UK small caps? Uh, that we are, we seem apt as a nation, as a media, at, at talking ourselves down. And we've been on the naughty step globally with investors um, since Brexit, really. Uh, there's been a chronic underinvestment, if you look at business investment, um, since Brexit happened. And it's just because we're quite a small market, you as a global fund manager, it allows you to take a zero weight to the UK and not get punished for it because our equities haven't done particularly well. Fund flows do move prices. We've had flow exodus for too long, um, which has left too many UK companies, albeit UK in a sense, they might be listed here, but they have global enterprises. Some of them are making the majority of the sales overseas. So what frustrates me is that a lot of our world-class companies have all been thrown out with the with the bathwater, tarred with the same brush, and it's put them to a certain level. You get an opportunistic takeovers now, um, snatching them away from us on the cheap when we really should be talking ourselves up, um, be, being more front-footed on a global stage because uh, we do have some wonderful businesses what we're not great at and what the Americans are far better at is taking a, a medium-sized bid- business and turning it into something very, very big indeed. We allow our medium-sized businesses to be taken just at that inflection point too early. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for your insights today. It's been another thought-provoking and, and interesting episode. So thank you to everyone for listening to episode three of Financial Gain. My name is Jonathan Gain, and uh, we'd love to uh, get your feedback from this session and indeed our previous podcasts. So do follow us on your podcast app. Uh, Don't forget to include uh, an email to us to give us any feedback and indeed any topics you want to hear as, as our podcast series develops. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.